0: in all of history. It is the reason why we have life and salvation today. Thankful for the cross. And I'm going to be happy 10,000 years from now to think on the cross. Amen. My name is Jason Benson. I'm the children's pastor here at the church. If you don't know me, I'm uh, really excited to be with you here. It's always a privilege to speak. I haven't been speaking a lot over the past four years. I used to be a pastor, church planter, and I've Preached all the time, but over the past four years, I haven't done that. Past year, I've been in children's ministry, so I've been teaching children and loving on kids. Uh, but for the past four years, I've only preached twice to adult congregations. And so, this is my fourth sermon. I'm knocking it out two in one day. So, at this rate, things are looking really good for me. You know what I mean? So, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. The, the beginning set, I mentioned this in the first service too there. The beginning set of songs, man, that took me back. I am from the southeast, and you might not know it, but I'm 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 a I'm a Pentecostal. I was raised in Pentecostal churches, and so when they would sing songs like "I Fly Away," we would we would get happy. <laughs> right? That's what we that's what we called it. We got happy, and uh, those were those were fun. So I'm just it took me back 25 years at some of those old services and yeah, some of these songs. That's what I grew up on, and uh, yes, it was great. I'm uh, really excited to preach today. Uh, we're, we've been working through First Corinthians. I've uh, been in this series for a long time now. Uh, it's been really good. I want to today's sermon and the end of chapter 14, I'm going to be focusing on closing out a section of Scripture that we've been in for a while. Chapters 11 through 14 is one cohesive unit, and chapter 14 just kind of concludes that, and I'm going to be doing that. Let me talk to you briefly just about what we've learned so far in chapters 11 through 14. Uh, we've, We've learned instructions on how to conduct ourselves individually as men and women, in communion, as a corporate body with many different spiritual gifts. We received instructions on love and how without it, everything else is absolutely meaningless. We've received instructions on tongues and prophecy, on pursuing that which builds up the church. And today we come to the conclusion of this portion of Scripture and receive instructions on orderly worship. Before we get into the passage, let's take a broader backdrop just so that we know what was happening in the Corinthian church as a whole. We understand over the several weeks the Corinthian church was not a very healthy church. There was a lot of issues in the Corinthian church. We know that the Corinthian church was not unified. We know that there was great division in the body. We know that there was sexual immorality among them even to a kind that wasn't tolerated among pagans. Uh, Many did not look out for the welfare of the poor, but committed great acts of sin at the Lord's table. And we learned in recent weeks that many viewed their individual ecstatic experiences as a sign of maturity, and yet they were babes because these experiences didn't lead to the building up of the church, but rather to the detriment of the church. Though spiritual gifts were very active among the Corinthian church, the state of the church was very shaky, to say the least. So if you have your scripture, we're going we're to look at 14, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Um, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or the most three, and each in turn, and let them interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged." And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church." Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently. And in order, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today, God, grateful for all that you have done for us. We're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the hope that we have and the life that you have given us. We recognize, God, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. We also recognize, Father, that you are our teacher. You are our instructor. So we ask that you would open up our ears to hear Open up our minds and hearts to receive. Help us, God, to leave here unified and motivated for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I have three main goals for this message today. I want to. Um, I want to. The first goal. I want to explore the theology behind the practical. And when you're going to hear this word practical, a few times I want to give you an understanding of what I mean when I say practical. I'm I'm concluding chapters 11 through 14. So the theology behind the practical, I'm trying to get at what is the foundation for what chapters 11 through 14 teach. So the practical is the teachings of chapter 11 through 14. So first I want to explore the theology behind the practical. Secondly, I want to examine the motivation for doing the practical. And finally, I want to get to exegeting our text through the lens of the first and second goals. My reason for this is simply because this is a difficult text. This is probably not the text you choose if you just have one speaking engagement at a church. (laughs) Right? But that's why I'm thankful that we are a church that works through the book. It means we have to handle it all, all of God's work. I remember a few weeks back, Chuck Hastings is in the room here. I was sitting, I was standing beside him back there at that window. And I told Chuck, I said, Hey, Chuck. Now, again, I probably shouldn't have been talking during the sermon, <laughs> but I did. It was quiet. I said, Hey, Chuck. So I get to preach. I was excited, so I wanted to let him know. So I said, Hey, Chuck, I get to preach. And, um, and and I get to preach on tongues and interpretation, prophecy, and women remaining silent in the congregation. And I said, I said, Chuck, can't you tell how much Robert and Kevin love me here? And he lost it. And I've never prayed so hard in my life. Oh, God, Chuck, hold it together. Hold it together, brother. Hold it together. Everybody's got I mean, he was just, he had his hand over his mouth. He was bent over. He was laughing so hard. And I've heard that a lot here recently. Well, I'm glad it's you, Jason. I've heard that. But that's the reason why I want to lay a proper foundation. It's a difficult text. Let's look through it through a good lens. My primary purpose in this message is to inspire you. I want to inspire you to intentionally live in such a way that builds up those around you. I want us to live intentionally about strengthening people around us in church so let's look at our main point, first point, the theology behind the practical. I'm going to state a question. I'm not going to address the question immediately. I will come back to the question, but I want you to be thinking on the question. So the question is, what is the absolute foundation these scriptures rest on? Chapters 11 through 14, what is the foundation that they rest on? Every one of us in this room, we, in this room, we have been shaped, we have been conditioned by our surroundings. Every one of us, we're conditioned by what we see, by what we listen to, by what we watch, by who we talk to, our family, our culture, where we're from, whether it's the southeast where Good Barbecue is at, or the northeast, or the west, wherever. You're shaped by your surroundings. Because of this, the lens in which we look through will ultimately determine how we interpret what we see. So we all are going to look at things somewhat differently because we all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. I'm going to give you an example of of something that happened in our lives, my wife Melinda and I, that, that changed the lens on how we view things. I was a church planter. I came out here in 2011 and so excited to plant a church. I knew God called me to Utah, and I came from Florida, and I was just really excited to plant a church. And we were out here, and we prepared months and months to get out here and, and we, I pastored a smaller church for three years and we've had, you know, a lot of good experiences, but a lot of rocky up and down experiences. And I, I learned, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was learning as I went along and, and it, it was good. But the, we realized at the end of three years, the church was not going to be self-sustaining. We couldn't get it to the point where it was self-sustaining. That broke my heart because that was the only thing that held us in Utah. But sometimes faith is allowing something to die. If you know that that's where God's moving, I wanted to fight for it. I wanted to try to make it happen, but faith, let it die. God, you're doing something else. All of our connections were back in Tennessee and North Carolina and that area. My wife and I both went to college in Tennessee, and so. We went home. We moved home to a place more comfortable where we could have a, big, a better support system to try to figure out what our next steps would be in life. It was there I found out my son Isaac at two years old had a brain tumor. It was there that our worlds were completely rocked and shaken. It was there that we were introduced to the world's number one surgeon for this particular brain tumor. It was there that St. Jude picked us up and took care of everything and we didn't have to pay a dime for four brain surgeries. It was there that God saved my son's life. And so my lens radically changed. No longer was I mourning the departure from Utah. I was saying, thank you. Thank you, God, that you know what's best for me. Thank you, God, that you you know what's best for my family. I looked at it completely different, and I'm thankful that just one year later, the doors opened up, and we moved back into the exact same place, same bedroom that we were living in a year prior. Who does that, right? Who does that? That's God, and here I am in Utah, has my heart. I'm working at this church, and you people are amazing, and I'm just, I see things from a different perspective. The reason why I wanted to start with those two main points is because in order to get a proper understanding of this passage of Scripture, we really need to be looking through a good, proper lens. So back to my question, what is the absolute foundation these Scriptures rest on? I'm a children's pastor, so I ask questions, and the, the, the biggest response is Jesus. And if that was your response, God, you're right, good job let's just go a little bit deeper more specifically the answer is the order of God so the order of God is the absolute foundation that these scriptures rest upon we know this in verse 33 for it says our God is not a God of confusion but of peace it doesn't say that he likes peace says that he is peace It's who he is. It is his nature to be order. The very nature of God himself is order. Think of the creation account. Everyone knows Genesis, the creation account. First day, God created. It was good. There was evening and morning. Second day, it was created. Good, evening and morning. Third day, created. Good, evening and morning. Fourth day, good, uh, created. Good, evening and morning. Right? God does things in order. There's a reason for the things that God does, and it's ordered. Think of the human body. Our bodies are so complex, we have never created any computer that can do what the human brain can do. We can't even come close. Our bodies are absolutely unbelievable, and yet Scripture tells us in Psalm chapter 139, verse 13 and 14, for you, Lord... You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together while I was in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord. My soul knows it very well. This psalmist is exuberating with joy over the fact that God creates babies in the womb and and, and the, the... Our bodies are amazing and we can do these things and we can think and we can make decisions and he's like wow God thank you God does things in order there's order how he created us very specific order now let's look at the motivation let's go to my second point so God is in and of himself a God of order which is the foundation for these verses Now let's talk about the motivation for the practical, for living this thing out. How does this revelation of God, being a God of order, motivate us to intentionally live in such a way that builds up the church? There's four things I want to discuss here. Number one, we were created in his image. That should just blow you away right there when you really think about that. The God who spoke everything in existence out of nothing. He just said, let there be. Boom, there was. Right? Over 200 billion galaxies, I think, maybe in the known universe. Crazy, vast expanse of his creation. Yet he created you, created me in his image. No one else can share that. No one else did he come down and form and fashion out of the dust of the earth as he did man. No one else can say that they were formed and fashioned out of man's rib, as woman can say. And God did this intimately in forming and creating us. For, so God created man in Genesis 1.27 in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. The second motivation is we are called to imitate Christ. Not only are we created in his image, now he says, now come imitate me. Colossians 3.13, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I am imitator of Christ. 1 John 2.6 The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We were created in his image. He calls us to imitate him in how he lives. Third point, God organized the body as he saw fit. Every person in this room, not only were you fearfully and wonderfully made, not only were you knitted together in your mother's womb, every gifting, every talent, every weakness, everything that you have about you, God formed and fashioned that in you for a specific purpose. You might develop these gifts and they might get better, but the gift was there to start with, and God gave it to you, right? Because of this, God has fashioned us, as a body of believers in this room with different experiences, different stories, different giftings, different talents, and he put us together in this place for such a time as this so that we can build each other up. And it's not arbitrary. It's purposeful. There's great purpose in what he's doing. There's great purpose for you being here. There's reason for that. The fourth thing that we're motivated, that brings us motivation for the practical, is that we're called to reflect the light. Jesus said, I am the light. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. And then he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, 14 and 16, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine so that when others see your good works, they can give glory to you? No. They can give glory to God because all glory comes from Him and it goes back to Him. And we're called to reflect that light. God is a God of order. He created us, He called us to imitate Him, He positioned us specifically where we are at, and He tells us to reflect back to him if that's not enough motivation to live it out i'll I'll stop it right there that's a lot of motivation to live this out people that's good motivation that's stuff to be happy about no other creation can say that so now that brings us to our, our our text and my third point is that i want us to look at the text through the lens of a god of order It's really important that we address it through this lens because it is a difficult text. And so I want us to remember that. I want you to be saying this word all the time as we order. Okay, we're going to look at it through that lens. There's three main sections in this passage. We're going to cover tongues and prophecy. We are going to cover instruction on women in the church. And we are going to cover, finally, a warning that this order is from the Lord. Prior to these three sections, there's this great verse in verse 26. It is an instruction right before these, and it's wonderful. I'm so glad God put it there. Let's look at verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. All things. Every one of you you have something to bring. Everyone brings something to the worship service. Some sing, some teach, some serve, some edify each other with words, some some weep with those who weep, some rejoice with those who rejoice, some encourage. We all have something that we bring that God has given us and shaped us to bring. And he says, it should all be done for building up. So, We have to interpret everything that precedes this based off of this. It's for building up. It is for building up. I'm a God of order, and the purpose here is to build up. Which brings us to tongues and interpretation. 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. There is a main point here. Um, Before we get to the main point, I am going to cover uh, a couple of other things because I want you to know there are different views on tongues, okay? People have different views on what it means by tongues. It's not the main point of this text, but let's address it. I'm going to, and this is not going to be a seminary lecture. I'm not going to give you the ins and outs of these three points that I'm going to bring up. Uh, if you're interested in studying further, please do so. I'm going to list the points. I'm going to list maybe one or two things and reasons why people believe that. And in the end, I'm going to tell you where I land in my experience, okay? Point number one, that, that people, uh, they're, they're fir- the first of you, tongues have ceased, they no longer exist. Okay, this is called cessationism, which means cease. Uh, the reason that a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters uh, believe this is um, is because of Ephesians chapter 2 21 reason is they believe the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the apostles and prophets are no longer with us they also look to scripture itself scripture is a closed canon it's got a beginning it's got an end and it has everything in it that we need to know salvation and sanctification which I agree a thousand percent everything that we need to know about salvation sanctification is in the book okay let me, I forgot to say this point. I'm going to bring this back out because this is really important. In these views, no matter what view that you have, right? And I just covered the first view. No matter what view you have, your view on tongues is a non-essential. Hear that? It is an absolute non-essential, okay? Having differing views on tongues should never Never bring division in a church. Period. The whole point here is building up unity of the body. I'm stating different views because there are different views. Okay, so second view. The first one is tongues of sea. Second one, tongues are known human languages only. Um, And people come to this conclusion, they build it off of Pentecost. Pentecost came, Holy Spirit filled them. They spake with other Tongues. People from around the world were traveling through there, different cultures, different languages, and they heard them speaking in their own native tongue. And these were actual known languages, and so they're hearing that. And therefore, because of this, they believe that when tongues is mentioned in Scripture, that it always refers back to that where people hear actual specific languages. There's a third view on tongues. Tongues can be both known human languages and it can also be unknown heavenly languages. And some of the reasons that they come here is 1 Corinthians 13.1, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and or angels. 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul talks about various kinds of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.2, uh, when someone speaks in a tongue, he speaks to God and not to men, and he utters mysteries in the spirit. So they believe that there's a known human language that are tongues, and there's also a type of heavenly language. I land here. Okay, as I said earlier, I believe I said um, I grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church, um, Pentecostal world. I have seen a lot of stuff, people. I've seen a lot of craziness. And I have seen stuff that is so genuine and so heartfelt and so good and times where you would come into the room and it just, it's just almost like it's just a holy hush and people were just expecting and it's just quiet and it's orderly and someone speaks in tongues. I was I remember a specific time in college. I was studying for ministry, young man. I was a part of a a good church. This was not a crazy church. This was a good Pentecostal church, let me just say that. Um And someone stood up. It was one of those moments in the service where it was just, you could feel God's spirit very strongly. Um, And someone stood up, and he spoke in tongues, and he sat back down, and it was quiet. You could not hear a page turning. You couldn't hear a pin drop. It was just silence. And I felt I'd never had an experience like this before. And I felt strongly that I was supposed to give a word or an interpretation. I felt like God was wanting me to say something to encourage the body. And I was afraid. I was, like, really scared to do this. I, I really didn't want to do this. i was like, God, you know, just please talk to somebody else here. Please, please talk. I, I, and, and at the same time, I didn't really know, right? I wasn't 100% on it. So I didn't say anything. I sat back. 45 seconds or so goes by. 45 seconds of pitch. I mean, just quietness is a long time. You agree with that? That's a long time. Kind of awkward, just hoping, right? Someone step up to the plate, you know? Um, someone did. They stood up and they, they, they gave an interpretation. And I'm not going to tell you that it was verbatim of what I was going to say, but literally 90, 95% of the content was exactly the same of what I felt God wanting me to tell to the church, right? Which kind of blew me away. It really did. It opened my eyes. And just based off of scriptures and, and experiences that I had, I land here. With that said, it doesn't matter where you land. You're my brother. You're my sister. Okay? You can be a cessationist, and I will hug you, and we'll go eat, and we're, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It should never bring disunity. I said all that just to get to the main point because that's not what this scripture is talking about. That's not the main point of this text on tongues. The main point is order and building up the church. We see this clearly in verses 27 and 28 where Paul's saying two or at the most three, right? Two or at the most three speak in tongues and, and do this in order. So if, so if there's ever a time and ten people all of a sudden stand up and they're starting to speak in tongues, which I just don't really see that happening at the moment, but um, <laughs> if that ever did happen, Right. That's not of God. God would not order that because God is a God of order. And Paul's giving the instruction, let two are at the most three. And keep silent if no one's there to interpret. So, so if no one's there to interpret a tongue, Paul's saying, just be quiet. Even though you might be having an experience where you're having this great encounter with God and you feel edified, nobody else knows what you're talking about. They're not edified. The church is not built up. And Paul's saying, the point is the church. The point is the body of believers coming together and being edified together, not isolated individuals being edified. So, again, the the main point is order. Let's look at prophecy. Verses 29, 33. Uh, Like tongues... Uh, we 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 see that prophecy also has um, different views. Okay, I'm not going to go into all the views on prophecy. If you're a cessationist, you don't believe that prophecy exists anymore, um, and others still believe that God speaks through people to bring encouragement and edification to the church. I land here. Let's talk about what prophecy is not. To understand what prophecy is, we're going to address the question: What prophecy is not? Prophecy is not, capital N, capital O, capital T, it is not equal with Scripture, period. Now, I came from a background where a lot of people would argue that it is because it's God's Word, so therefore it's just as, it's just as infallible as everything else. That's crazy talk, right? Because the Bible refutes it in the very next verse here when he's talking about prophecy. Prophecy is judged to be credible or not credible by Scripture. So he's saying, let two or at the most three and in turn prophesy. And then he says, and let others weigh what is being said. That's the important part. How do you weigh what is being said? You weigh it by this book. You weigh it by the Scripture. So in the weighing of it, if someone stands up and they're prophesying and it's in order, others are taking the book, does it line up? Does the scripture support it? Does it seem to be in line with what the scripture is saying? And is it, is it bringing unity and edification to the body? And if it is, then those who are weighing it can say it is credible and, and say that this is, we believe this is for the church. If it doesn't line up with the book, period, is done. Mm -mm. Mm-mm, mm-mm, that's crazy talk, right? It has to line up with the book. So prophecy is not equal with Scripture. Another thing that prophecy is not, prophecy is not an uncontrollable ecstatic experience. Something does not come over you, and then all of a sudden you're compelled, and you have to speak no matter what. God doesn't take over anybody like that. God is a God of order. We see this in verse 32 where it says the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So prophecy is not an uncontrollable ecstatic experience. I'm going to give you a little definition. This is really simple of what I believe prophecy is. I'm sure that some people can come up with another definition. Here's a simple definition of what I believe prophecy is. It is speaking a word that you believe is from the Lord to the church. It's speaking a word that you feel impressed that God is talking to you To share with the church and this word is always held under the scrutiny of the Bible okay so that's what I believe prophecy is what is prophecy in this passage the well the purpose of prophecy in this text in this text according to verse 31 it's so that the church may learn and be encouraged together again its unity It's learning together. It's being encouraged together. The main point of prophecy in this text is order, just like tongues. It is order and for the building up. He says, let two or three. There's a reason why he gave numbers. We don't want ten people standing up speaking in English at the same time because that will sound like gibberish too, and that's not going to edify anyone. So there's order in what Paul is instructing here. Let's go to our our next section. So we've covered tongues and prophecy. Uh, We're at the section on instruction on women in the worship service. Let's read it. Verse 33B. As in all the churches of the saints. Sorry. Sorry, guys. All right. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. Now, like tongues and prophecy, people have different views on this text. Okay? The reason that I wanted to discuss the first and second objective is so that we can look through a proper lens when we look at texts like this, Tongues Prophecy and this text on women in the worship service. We want to interpret it through the lens of a God of order. Okay, So let's talk about this text. (coughs) Let's talk about what we know about this text. According to verse 33b, It says, as in all the churches of the saints, okay? So we know that Paul is instructing is the standard for all churches, okay? So whatever he's going to talk about here, whatever is the content of this, and we'll get to the content of it, it is for all churches. It is not singled out just for this one particular unique issue or something that's happening in this church, which personally I believe something... Who knows what's happening in this church? It probably was, right? This church had a lot of problems, but what he's covering here is the standard for all churches. That's what we know. Second thing we know, three chapters earlier in the same book, Paul's still writing this. Chapter 11, verse (coughs) 5. It shows us that women were permitted to pray and prophesy in a manner that is honorable. They weren't to pray and prophesy in a manner that was dishonorable, but Paul already three chapters earlier said you can pray and you can prophesy in an honorable way. So with that, surely Paul didn't forget, right? He didn't forget what he said just three chapters earlier and said, oh, no, women can't talk at all. It can't be a complete silencing of women, Paul's smart enough that he would not forget that. So it's not a complete silencing. If you were to just take these two verses and you had no context whatsoever of of Paul's other writings, you could walk away with a pretty skewed picture of what you're interpreting. Thankfully, we have more context. (coughs) Third thing that we know, verse 34 and 35. And y'all pray for my throat here, seriously, sorry, i struggling. <coughs> this is okay, right? You, you can have patience with me, right? Okay. What we know is that this section follows verses 34 and 35. Uh, I, mean, I mean, verse 34 and 35 follow the section on prophets speaking and weighing what is said. So let's take our, 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 our attention off of women remaining silent and let's put our attention back on prophets speaking and the weighing of what is being said. The weighing of what is said <coughs> either affirms or not affirms what is being prophesied according to scripture. So someone stands up, they prophesy, others weigh and they either affirm or not affirm it. Therefore, the affirming and not affirming or not affirming is therefore taking an authoritative position over the church as a whole. For if someone stands up, they prophesy, and someone weighs what is said, then they apply it or they not apply it. That application is for everyone which is an authoritative position and instruction over the church so we know that the fourth thing that we look at is first timothy 2 11, 13 <coughs> just flip over there real quick thank you i need all i can get i'm telling you i'm struggling Thank you, brother. That was very edifying. Very edifying. Yeah, yeah that probably would. Thank you. All right. Um, so First Timothy 2.13, I mean 2.11 and 13. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It doesn't say I don't permit a woman to teach. It says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, right? And where he goes to lay the foundation for this, it's not cultural, okay? It's not a cultural argument because Paul doesn't talk about something that's culturally happening in Corinth or wherever in those churches in the day. Where does he go? for he created Adam first and then Eve. You see, to back what he's saying, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. He says Adam was formed first and then Eve. And remember, we've already covered that God is a God of order. There was reasons for creating Adam and there was reasons for the way he created Eve and they point to something. We're gonna get to that. So with these things that we do know, I think we can reach a faithful conclusion to what Paul is saying. Paul is not silencing women completely in general. What Paul is doing is he is not permitting a woman to speak in a way that is showing authority over the church. And in the context of what's happening with people prophesying and the weighing of what is said, the prophesying, yes, yes, Women do prophesy. It's the weighing and the applying of that authoritative application over the church is what Paul says women should remain silent. Again, the main point here, let's try to take our eyes off of our, our current um, Western society that just hates words like submission or authority. Let's try to take our eyes off of these things to see deep picture there's an important picture that's happening here the main point is order men and women both were created to point to Jesus now we do this differently but one is not better than the other one is not over the other They both point and reflect. That's what we're supposed to do, reflect back. They point to Jesus. As Christ leads the church and laid his life down for her, so men reflect Jesus by our leading, by our loving, by our caring, by our edifying, by our building up, by our protecting of women because that's what Jesus does to us. Don't we want him to do that to us? We reflect back in that leading, and we point back to Jesus Likewise, as Christ submits to his Father in love and honor, so women reflect Jesus in their honoring and submission to their husbands. Think of this. Jesus, God from all eternity past, forever the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians uh, 1.15 forever the image of the invisible God. He's always been God. He's co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit, and he has always submitted to the Father with love and reverence and honor, and the Father has always loved his Son, and that love between them is so strong and so intense. It's personified in the Holy Spirit and this union of the triune Godhead and community and order and peace. We're called to reflect that, which meant it should give you great motivation to love your wives more. That's really beautiful when you think about it. It's really beautiful that we are pointing to something so beyond what our minds can even comprehend. We both point to Jesus because God is a God of order and peace. Ben, you can come on up because this last section is not going to be as long. We're going to move over. Uh, To the final section here. And this is a word of warning uh, that this order that Paul's laying out for the worship service is from the Lord. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? It's kind of like a little jab there. You know what I mean? He's kind of jabbing the Corinthians here. He's saying, did it originate with you guys? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul, Paul's saying, listen, if, 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 if your picture of order is different than what I'm instructing to the church, well, that's not going to stand. That's not going to stand because... God himself is a god of order and god is immutable he does not change god does not change for us we either see the order as beautiful and want to participate in this order with great motivation or we reject it and we don't want it but god does not change for us but I love how he ends it he says so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but again all things should be done decently and in order church we're here to build each other up it's not about me just coming here to have my own individual experience with God if that's the case we're missing it people we're here to think of the body as a whole But in the meantime, as we wait, we have a great hope. We have a great future. We have something really exciting. I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 21 with me. In the meantime as we strive and strive to live lives in community with each other that reflect Jesus in everything that we say and do. In the meantime, we are anticipating something so great and so marvelous. And it's right here in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, all things are now new. You see, this God of great order is going to come. And he's going to dwell with us. That's what we have to look forward to. That is our hope. That's our future. And so in the meantime... Let's live in such a way that we build each other up, that we encourage each other, and we're intentional about it. We're thinking about ways that we can build people up around us because this is where we're going. This is what's going to happen one day. And I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for just instructing us and teaching us about yourselves. About yourself and help us to live our lives, God, that reflect you in everything that we say and do. Thank you for this church, and I pray, Father, that you would just minister greatly to the people in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken, I'm accepted.